This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all again. My name is Zach Lutz. It's so good to be with you. We're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John. Uh, In John, we're looking at some signs and some statements uh, that Jesus makes during his earthly ministry, some signs being miracles and some statements that he's making. And so today we're in, excuse me, in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, having just left our introduction in John chapter 1, where uh, there was this huge prelude of themes that we're going to see throughout the book, uh, John is preparing for us what we're about to see. And in John chapter 2, we're about to see the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus does. And in this, we're going to see Jesus celebrating. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as serious or stoic and reserved. But of all the context in this passage, it would seem that Jesus was actually quite capable of fun, could be in some sense involved in the party, could enjoy it, uh, quite relatable. Even if he was aware of the kind of life that he would have to live, the kind of death that he would have to die, and the work that was set before him to do. But Jesus had this work set before him because he had an awareness of what humanity was made for. He had an awareness of what the good life was. And Jesus delights. It is his goal to provide for us the good life. Now, I also think that we often think that God is kind of this distant father that provides for us only the bare minimum. Uh, kind of like those sayings that you hear maybe from, from distant parents. Like, what? I put food on the table. I made sure that you were clothed. I made sure that you had a roof over your head. What more do you want? But this isn't exactly how we'll see Jesus defi- define providence this morning. Jesus is going to show us that his idea of providing is providing for us his idea of the good life. Now, here's the thing. Our idea of the good life and his idea of the good life don't always match up, and so sometimes we're severely disappointed. But rest assured that God, that Jesus does want to provide for us the good life. And we're going to see Jesus' definition of the good life is characterized by an overabundance and by inbreaking goodness. And so for you note-takers, those are going to be our two points, an overabundance and inbreaking goodness. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Have you guys ever heard of the scarcity model or scarcity mentality? It kind of goes like this. Here's, Here's a story that kind of summarizes it. There was a woman who, in her rush home from work to pick up her toddler from daycare, stopped at a convenience store to buy diapers. And in her hurry, she accidentally used her company credit card to purchase the diapers instead of her own personal bank card. So when her boss, in time, asked her about this, she was shocked and a little embarrassed and asked how the error could be rectified, but her boss fired her. In the ensuing weeks, she burned through the little bit of savings that she had, And feeling the desperation of providing for even basic needs, she's trying to fill it with part-time work and find other jobs, uh, but enrolls in another credit card. And so when the credit card arrives, and she admits this kind of in her own testimony in here, I didn't just buy what I needed to help fill in the gaps between my part-time work and what I would have made otherwise, but I went to the store and I maxed it out, buying family sizes, super sizes of everything, laundry detergent, diapers, paper towels. Scarcity created a situation where her focus narrowed to the most pressing items, but almost became obsessed about them. Instead of buying only what was necessary, she stocked up, and in doing so, amplified an already difficult financial situation. Now, I think all of us can identify with this in some way, even if it's just with the toilet paper during a pandemic, which will continue to haunt our collective memories for years to come. But this scarcity model infiltrates other things. Right after a breakup, our focus narrows to the lack of personal interaction and care. We amplify the painful situation by obsessing over it, either obsessing about how to make that relationship right or obsessing about how to replace it with another one. This model infiltrates our relationship with food. I can't pass up the opportunity to, to supersize something. I'm saving money per calorie. And in some sense, we actually hold this up as a virtue to our children. Um, As we have them compete in games in two teams that are playing against one another, we describe the teams as as opponents. And it takes on this enemy language. There can only be one victor. If you're not first, you're last. very easy to have this mindset in political, economic, warfare situations. This is even true in arguments with our spouses, friends, parents, and children. We treat disrespect from someone as if respect is this commodity that's then being like traded around. And so disrespect here then goes to someone else, and there's always got to be this power dynamic and power play. But we understand that parents must, in some sense, absorb disrespect from their teenagers in order to parent effectively. And they don't actually lose any of that respect. In fact, they might command more. And you know what? Humans are humans. Even Christians do this. Um, we take the same principles, and we believe that God plays by the same rules, that God plays within a, scarce, within a scarcity model. So for this example, I'd like for all of us to kind of focus on a sin that we have. You might be able to come up with 
tons, but try to focus on just, on just one. And maybe even those sins that you like to turn to again and again, maybe even in spite of God. It's like those times where you feel a little bit bitter against God and you look him dead in the eyes and you decide to sin anyway, those, those sins. If you've got that sin, and I would venture that most of us do have one, when we look at God straight in the eyes, we believe that God sees that as a power move, that God's gonna react at that somehow. Anger, violence, standoffishness, that he would just let us embrace all of this. Now, you wouldn't be entirely wrong. There is punishment for our sin. There is, it does separate us from God. But I'd invite you to look or think of even the first story in the Bible, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God and God's response. See, when they ate the fruit that they were not supposed to eat and directly disobeyed God, there was a separation from God. There was cursed work, cursed marriages, and cursed childbearing. But God doesn't operate on simply a zero-sum game with his power and majesty and royalty, feeling like he's been offended somehow. He actually comes closer in that moment. He is saddened, and the relationship is broken, but he actually comes closer. Jesus shows up at this feast. He knows that his time has not yet come. It's the celebration, right? It's a wedding. Like, it's this, these are some of the biggest parties we still have today. Like, the biggest parties that we go to are wedding parties. Jesus shows up. He knows that his time has not yet come. Uh, and that's probably referring to the fact that many of these people that might be in this crowd might later be in the crowd that are shouting, crucify him. And so his response to his mother is, is less about some sarcasm or eye-rolling, and we're going to talk about that more in a second, um, but more has to do with the fact that like, when his public ministry is starting, there's a one-way road, and it's going to the cross. But Jesus is at this party. His time has not yet come. And this opportunity comes to provide. The party is lacking something. And like I said, we might believe that Jesus is doing this a little bit begrudgingly. Like his mom approaches him. He's kind of like, okay, mom. Yeah, I'll do. Okay. Yeah, I got it. It's fine. And kind of rolls his eyes like, I'll do the show again. But Jesus can't be compelled to do anything. Not even by his own mother. And what we see is that when he does provide, he doesn't just provide the bare minimum, just the roof over the head, just enough to get by, he provides abundantly. I mean, look at how much wine this is. Six jars of 20 to 30 gallons. So we're talking like 150 gallons of wine. Now I understand that it's a custom at this time to like invite the whole town that you live in to the wedding, right? Um, maybe even people outside of the town. You'd have relatives coming far and wide to the wedding. Also that these festivities would go on for many days at a time, maybe even up to a whole week. But we would also assume that the host of the party had initially planned for some of these guests. So they're probably a few days in and either had more guests or just ill-prepared. So Jesus doesn't just provide what they need to get through the end of the festivities. He provides abundantly. And this would only be a foretaste. See, I use that, that word foretaste because it's kind of this inbreaking of the kingdom. We're like tasting a little bit before we get the whole thing. 
You see, in Scripture, uh, Israel will reference the promised land as the land flowing with milk and honey. God's kingdom is a land marked by abundance. Isaiah, in our Old Testament reading, will describe the kingdom of God as one that has well-aged wine. Jesus doesn't stop at just providing for our physical needs in abundance. And of course, in his kingdom, there will be no lack for want of physical needs on anyone when his kingdom comes in its fullness. But Jesus provides for everything else, too. You see, at this party, there was a host that was at risk of shame and embarrassment for not having provided enough. Jesus saw the shame of the host and didn't just think like, he'll get over it, it's a small thing, but provided for it abundantly. Jesus sees your shame and abundantly provides for it. He washes away that shame. He gives you a new name. You know that sin you thought of earlier? That one that you believe tends to push God away to keep him distant from you because he's embarrassed by you, kind of a little bit disgusted by you? That sin has not just been covered, but abundantly covered. It's been covered by the best name there is. It has been cleaned by the best cleaning agent that there is. We have been united to the purified one. Jesus provided the most abundant covering by covering it with his own life. Did Jesus lust after someone else's spouse? No, but he experienced betrayal. Did Jesus try to escape his life situations through numbing agents like alcohol? No, but he fully faced the cup that he was given, as the Bible will say, and drank all of it that sour wine that he was given to drink? Did Jesus insist upon his own version of events? Did Jesus lash out in anger at some sort of misstep from his disciples, worrying about his pride and arrogance being challenged? Did Jesus rail against Roman rule at every opportunity he was given? When Jesus took these punishments, and rose from the dead. He did it so that he might abundantly provide for you a new name. You see, we operate in a scarcity of stuff model. I don't have enough of this, I don't have enough of this, I just had this much more, then it'd be okay. And then when those things start being challenged, you know, we focus in and we obsess over it. But Jesus sees our scarcity as a scarcity of righteousness as a scarcity of sacredness, a scarcity of dignity. And he provides abundantly for us. And the way that he does it is that he changes how our relationship with God works because we are no longer separated from God, but united to God himself. He intends you to, like a guest at a wedding feast, to be able to rest in the abundant providence that he has given you because he has changed your very name. You're no longer enemies of God, but children of God. He delights to provide for you. He delights to provide for you abundantly. 
The second point that we're going to see is that Jesus not only provides abundantly, but this abundant providence is actually good. I'm really excited about the upcoming movie, Dune. And some of you know what that means, and some of you have no idea what that means. Uh, but it's a movie that's based on a series of Frank Herbert, Herbert novels from the 1960s. Uh, they have made a film in the past, but they're remaking it. And it was supposed to be released in October of 2020. But with the pandemic, they've kept pushing this movie further and further back as producers and studios uh, attempt to try to reconcile some of these losses of their investments. And so, as I continue having to wait and wait and wait, all I have to look for are these trailers. I get two to three minute little clips of what I think this movie is going to look like. You might say that there's these little trailers are inbreakings of this movie into my life here and now. That it's a future expected that is made realized just by this two or three minute thing, and I'm waiting for the fullness of it. When Jesus turned water into wine, the master of the feast could declare that the wine was good. If you look in John 2 there, you're going to see, right? They have this exchange here that says, usually they bring out this poor wine. Or they bring out the good wine first, I'm sorry. They bring out the good wine first, and then as people experience the good wine, maybe have a few drinks, then they don't notice the poor wine that comes later. Or even in another sense, as these parties spanned multiple days, it's really your initial impression of the party, right? The first drink you want that person to have, you want it to be unbelievable. But the subsequent drinks probably aren't going to be able to match it anyway, so it's okay if you bring out something a little bit more substandard. But in this situation, the opposite happened. Something good came, so much so that it astonished the master of the feast. Like, he's so shocked, he has to go find the bridegroom. Be like, what are you doing? When they are about to run out of wine, the potential for shame and embarrassment embarrassment is at its highest. Jesus creates this abundance of wine. And not only does he create a huge amount of it, but also, according to the master of the feast, it is good wine. Probably the best wine, because God made it. There's a lot that we could say. But the reality of it is, is that when Jesus created not just an abundance of something, but he also created it good, um, that we can identify this theme running throughout John, that when the rightful king arrives and he brings his kingdom in and he gives foretastes, that those foretastes are good. They're not simply mediocre. So God doesn't operate on the scarcity mo model, but neither does he operate on just it's fine model. His kingdom is the best model, an abundance of the best Those people at that wedding party some 2,000 years ago, unknown to most of them, not only got to taste wine made by God himself, but they got a foretaste, a little inbreaking, maybe like a two to three minute snippet of what the kingdom is going to taste like. And it tastes good. John will record Jesus saying later, that it is better for Jesus to leave and to ascend to the right hand of the Father because he will send a helper to us that will continue to give us these two to three minute snippets, these inbreaking of the kingdom, these little foretastes of the kingdom of God. Paul will say later, do not be drunk on wine, 
but be drunk on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this helper. And as the Bible attaches him to the inbreaking, these little two to three minute snippets, what they intend for you to say is that the Holy Spirit is what's going to allow you to taste what this kingdom is like. But sometimes we try to taste God's good kingdom in our own ways. One way that I, I like to do this is actually in nature. So I told a story before about Kintla Lake. Uh, it's in Glacier National Park in northwest Montana. Uh, my wife and I have been there, and it lives kind of in our, in our memory as just like this special place for us. Um, and there we were overwhelmed by God's goodness, by his majesty and strength. And so in some ways, one of the places that I feel like I can find God's goodness and an inbreaking of his good kingdom is at Kentla Lake. But something is a little bit off biblically with this idea. Because it's as if it, the inbreaking of God's good kingdom is far away. It requires this long journey. It's elusive and a little bit dangerous, and it's actually devoid of people. There are other ways that we strive and yearn for these tastes of God's kingdom that we've kind of manufactured in our own minds. We look for it in extravagant wealth or in business successes. If I could just have this thing, if we could just accomplish this task, I'll have tasted it. We look for it in sexual fulfillment, in health, in unrepeatable drug induces, you know, like chasing the high, you know, it's like you have the first one and you're always like looking for it again. It's never quite the same. When am I going to be able to taste the goodness of God's kingdom? When will enough be enough? Can you feel it in your own heart, that yearning for goodness? What does it taste like? The Holy Spirit gives us this taste of heaven, of this new kingdom. And the way that the Bible will describe it is that the Holy Spirit allows us to taste it through fruit. Describes that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives, and these are ways that we can see these little snippets and inbreakings of the coming kingdom. And these fruits are described as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you want to see what heaven is like? This is where you should look. Do you want to taste what heaven is like, this is where you look. You want to experience the good providence of God? Do you understand what it takes to take people that are fundamentally opposed to God and make them people that bear fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Here's the problem, though. Most of us still operate as if these things are only partially good and that the fruit of this world tastes better because we have, like, an experience of it that we're like, well, that, that must be it. That must be this thing that I'm searching after. And so we don't yearn for the fruits of the Spirit that Jesus says are good. See, the problem of Kentla Lake, in my memory, is not that God met me there, or that's not a beautiful example of God's creation and his power and his majesty. The problem is that I start to yearn for the taste of the created thing and not the creator. I start to believe that God only meets me there, that God's goodness is only there. 
I may have been stopped by his majesty and glory in that moment in northwest Montana, but my tastes didn't change. To see goodness like God tastes goodness, to see that he cares so much more for me, that he cares about me being good. And he provides abundantly for it. As we learn to see with God's eyes, we learn to yearn for the kinds of things that God yearns for. We begin to look for the inbreaking of the kingdom every day and every moment. We look for that goodness of these fruits of the spirits pouring in because Jesus said that he would provide it for us and that he would provide it for us abundantly and that it is good. We long to see it spill out of our lives. We long to see it in one another when we meet in small groups. We long to see it in our families. And so we strive for the goodness that God describes. So we see that when Jesus provides for us, he not only provides abundantly, but what he provides is also good. It is very good. Now, if you'll permit me one last point, and I'll conclude with this. If you'll notice... Jesus takes the jars that were for purification and he changes the water that was put into them into wine. So the water, symbolically speaking, that was once used to symbolize that we were separated from God and needed washing was changed into wine to celebrate a union. In Jesus' case, it was actually a union between two people in a wedding that they were celebrating. But we might also say that it is to celebrate a reunion of God with his people. Wine is used throughout the New Testament to signify what we sometimes call the new covenant, which is fancy language or just like shorthand for saying that the work that Jesus set out to do was accomplished and he has unified humanity once again to God by his sacrifice and work. There is no more need for sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice was paid. There is no more need for ritual cleansing because we have been united to the forever clean one. We are not celebrating the Lord's Supper today, but Jesus makes this abundantly clear when he turns to his disciples and he says, take this cup of wine. It is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Take and drink. It is abundant and it is good. Brothers and sisters, we are yearning for the good life. And we are sometimes a little bit bitter that our idea of the good life doesn't match God's. And so we turn to those kind of high-handed sins, maybe. We feel that Jesus has let us down. But one Christian writer describes humanity this way, that we are content playing outside in the mud when there's like a mansion over here that is ours. Jesus at this wedding and throughout his earthly ministry declares, I provide abundantly for you. And it is good. I provide for you. Come to me, all who are heavy laden with guilt and shame. Come to me, all who have been worn down by the brokenness of this world and find healing. Come all who long for reconciliation and find reconciliation in my blood. Find an abundance of provision that is good and that satisfies. Come and be united to me because my version of the good life is life forever with you.
Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, when you came and walked among us, you provided for us abundantly and you provided out of your goodness and you united us to yourself. And by the power of your spirit, you make us more and more like you teach us, Lord, to desire, to yearn for those same things. We are thankful for this abundant outpouring of love that we see in your rescue of us. We are thankful for the goodness that we see as you begin to change us from the inside out, as you begin to make us more and more like you. Jesus, allow us to see your providence for us. Allow us to see the good life as you see it. Allow us to taste it. Allow us to turn to you and find healing, rest, and goodness. We ask this. And we plead for this, and we expect this because you promised it. Amen.